welcome everyone to the fourth in our series of events on economics in the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm delighted that today we're addressing the issue of inequality. The title of today's event is Tackling Inequality After Brexit and COVID-19. We've got a fantastic panel. I'll go down them in the order they appear in my screen. That might confuse you because it'll be different on yours, no doubt. Katie Schmoker, who's Deputy Director of Policy and Partnerships at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. Mike Brewer, who is Deputy Chief, Eco uh, Chief Executive and Chief Economist at the Resolution Foundation. And Omar Khan, who's Director of TEZO and is going to tell you himself what TEZO stands for at some point during the hour and a quarter to come. As ever, stick your questions in on Slido if you can. And if you want to do me a favour, as we get far too many questions to cover, if you can vote for the one you want me to ask or the ones you want me to ask, that will make my life a lot uh, easier. I'm not convinced, Jonathan, I'm going to ask that question, but seeing as you're at the top of the list, it's going to keep being there bugging me. So we'll see how we get on. Uh, just to start then, I mean, let's start with the big picture and then we can narrow down if we need to. How unequal is the United Kingdom? Nice, easy starter for 10 for, for you. Just butt in or wave or... Well, it, let me go first. Um, I did write a book about this a couple of years ago. Uh, the answer is that we are pretty unequal. Uh, we are one of the most unequal countries in Europe. Um, in the G7, we are second only to the US. The US, of course, wins every single international competition for inequality. Uh, so second in the G7 inequality. Um, and I think more worryingly is we've been top of that list for two or three decades now. And it's, and it, I mean, and people do sometimes say to me, well, inequality's not going up, it's not getting any worse. Um, but I think that's missing one of the points, which is that it's, it matters how long we have this highly unequal society. Like every, every, if you think inequality is bad, then every year you have high inequality. That's another bad year, storing up problems, generating issues uh, for future generations. And if I could just come yeah. in on that. Um, I mean, I think thinking about it from the point of view of um, the experience of people who are in poverty. So those are at the, at the bottom of that inequality story. What we've seen over the last 10 years is what we've characterized as a decade of deprivation. So uh, incomes are kind of fallen on average, but they've fallen the fastest at the bottom. And we've seen a rising tide of child poverty and in-work poverty in particular in recent years. And that's been driven by things like crippling housing costs, uh, low paid jobs that are insecure that don't give people uh, certainty about their income one week to the next or one month to the next um, and uh, and the sort of the cuts that we've seen to social security in recent years all of those things have impacted heaviest on the bottom and it's simply you know it's simply not right that we are in a situation where um, you know we have made no dent in poverty in in recent years and that has profound effects for um, for people's prospects and their futures and for their children and their families. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that. I think it's really important when thinking about inequality, not just to think of it as a technical measure, but as an experience, especially for those at the bottom end who not only often experience lack of deprivation, but as a result, sorry, deprivation and lack of economic resources, but as a result, they, they feel like they're less able to participate and contribute to society. And we obviously 
uh, see that in terms of political engagement. Uh, we see that in terms of uh, trust in politicians or in um, our public institutions. I think the other feature of the UK and you know other countries do have this as well, of course, is that we have such a range of inequalities. It also then becomes hard from a policy perspective, you know, to prioritize. And there's even issues of contestation or social division over which inequalities matter most. So we have very significant, in addition to the income inequalities that I think Mike has rightly said are amongst the highest, we have a very high Gini coefficient, which is the way that we measure income distribution, um, or that economists measure income distribution. We also have very big regional inequalities. We have the worst regional inequalities of any European major European country. We have significant racial inequalities in Britain, and we also have inequalities on other grounds like disability. So I think that one of the other challenges, uh, I think from a policy perspective, as well as a public perspective, is you know um, how do we prioritize? Do we have to prioritize certain kinds of inequalities? And will an intervention that tackles one sort of inequality necessarily um, address other inequalities, or will it even make some of those other inequalities worse? Hey, so you don't need me here because Omar has posed the fantastic second question to all of you, which is, you know, what is the interrelationship between different sorts of inequality? Is there, I mean, one of the interesting things politically at the moment is there seems to be a row going on about, you know, this matters more than that when it comes to inequality. Uh, are they interrelated? Is there a certain sort of inequality we should be focusing on more than others at the moment? Is there a certain sort of inequality that should concern us more than any other at the moment? So there definitely are interactions. So you know, these are these are not separate categories. Um, if you, you know, if you think about people's life chances, they are profoundly shaped by where they live, by the colour of their skin, and um, by the sort of the education and the income of your parents, whether or not you're disabled. You know, we know that rates of poverty are uh, are much higher for people who are disabled, for lone parents, for people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, particularly Bangladeshi, Pakistani and black communities. Uh, you know, we we know where those um, overlaps are. A lot of the drivers are common. So those sort of drivers that I talked about in relation to housing costs, the quality of work um, and the sort of the role of our social security system, they're common across a lot of people. But clearly, we also need to think about where there are specific things that do make um, the risks of poverty much higher for some groups. So whether that's um, the role of discrimination in the labor market for people from ethnic minority backgrounds, for example, uh, similarly, the, um, the sort of constraints on uh, the opportunities to work for some disabled people. So there's definitely a long way that you can get through um, sort of policies that will improve poverty across the board, but we also need to look at uh, what are the specific barriers for some groups and how do we overcome those? Mike, we'll give Omar some time to prepare to answer his own question. Thank you. Yes, it's certainly good to just go back to my first answer and, and reflect that I was really talking about the, when I talked about inequality, I was there talking about the gap between the rich and the poor. Mm. Um, and we've introduced already this other dimension of inequalities, differences between different groups in society. I do tend to think of those in different ways. I just think some of the some of the inequalities between different groups, I think, can be really, really touch at our notion of fairness and justice in society. When we look at whether there be ethnic gaps or gender gaps uh, or even regional gaps, these can be really very stubborn, um, persistent, um, and I think speak usually speak much more directly to our notion of fairness. Uh, the gap between the rich and the poor, I think it's possible to have a broader debate about whether 
those sorts of gaps could be justified. Um, we don't tend to have debates about whether ethnic penalties in the labor market could ever be justified, for example. So I think they're different. And I think, I think actually I would be more concerned about between group differences, these inequalities between genders, races, uh, regions, ages, and so on, than I am between the gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, you also asked, are they are they related? And I, I well, I, I, I mean, I agree with Katie. Um, a, a strategy to tackle overall income inequality that was blind to some of these between group differences would certainly it would certainly fail at the bottom of the distribution. Uh, so, you know, some of our most people who suffer most disadvantage, um, they're, they're the risk factors do go up if you are, uh, they, they, they do relate to various structural inequalities in society. So yes, we can't, we can't ignore these between group inequalities in an overall inequality strategy. Just to push you for one sec, Mike, if I can, when you say between rich and poor, do you mean in terms of income or in terms of wealth, or do you mean both? Oh, I meant both. I mean, my, my, my opening statement about Britain being an unequal country was based on income inequality, the gap between the rich and the poor. Um, on wealth inequality, we are also uh, unequal there. It's a bit more difficult to make clean international comparisons. We don't have great data on wealth as we do for income. Um, but again, we do look uh, fairly unequal compared to other industri rich industrialized uh, countries. So, yes. Not good on either count. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up the sort of regional inequality versus individual level inequality, because you could imagine, for example, I'm not saying this would happen, but a policy to tackle uh, intra-regional uh, inequalities that didn't do very much to tackle the individual level inequalities within those regions. And that it looks like an intellectual question, but it isn't, uh, because if you look at, for example, the Southeast, which is in terms of economic performance doing very well. Um, the, low, the, the largest gaps between free school meal children and non-free school meal children in terms of higher education participation rates are in and around Berkshire. So Bracknell Forest um, uh, near Reading. And so, you know, the, the Southeast looks like a place where, you know, say we were trying to uh, make the Northeast do better economically, we could try to copy whatever we're doing that's making the Southeast an economic success story, but look at the, the level of inequality within that region, right? So I think you know, it shows the need both to tackle what are structural long-term economic performance issues and in regional inequalities in Britain, but also how tackling those may not necessarily address the income inequalities um, uh, that, that Mike and, and Katie have identified. But I do also tend to hold a view that tackling income inequalities would address some of the other forms of inequalities. It just wouldn't completely eradicate them insofar as there are other causal drivers of those inequalities. So, uh, and I think that then shows the need to have an approach that both uh, uh, endorses universal or general policies to tackle um, uh, income and wealth inequalities, but then also specific targeted policies, whether that's a regional policy around um, improving the economic performance of an area, or whether those are policies to tackle discrimination um, in the labor market. And the final point I want to make about that is I think to get that kind of policy um, approach, we actually need to focus quite a bit more on winning hearts and minds so that we adopt uh, an, you know, that kind of universal sense that all inequalities matter. If we only try to win the argument on one form of inequality, we're not going to get the political consensus we need to, to tackle inequality in Britain. So I think there's a real need to do a better job of communicating the fact that these inequalities, you know, you may not be affected by this kind of inequality. You may only be affected by that kind of inequality. But if you want the political consensus and the commitment to tackle the, even the inequality you face, you need to support an approach that tries to tackle the range of inequalities that we experience in the society. 
I want to come back to that in a sec. You've, you've just an, you've anticipated a question from Robert Morland, who says, is there a danger that we pay too much attention to the north and therefore just forget the fact that there are real areas of profound poverty in other parts of the country? Uh, you've kind of answered this, Omar, but just to, just to push it a little bit further, when it comes to the geography of inequality, what does, I mean, can you summarise the map or is that really unfair to ask you? I mean, I don't No, I don't think I can summarize. It's not <laughs> my expertise, but I do. Yes. The, the regional inequalities, though, are very stark in Britain. Right. Um, but if you then look at local authority area inequalities now, um, you said I would introduce my organizations, the Center for Transforming Access and Student Outcomes, which is a bit of a mouthful. But basically, we're looking at tackling specific equality gaps, which is those related to higher education participation. Um, and the areas that have the worst higher education participation do, are the sort of areas that we tend to talk about now a lot when we're talking about regional inequality. So Great Yarmouth has some of the worst, but also in and around Nottingham. And so on the one hand, yes, we can say there's, there's, there's sort of shared features of the kinds of places that seem to have low economic performance and low higher education participation and other kinds of inequalities. But on the other hand, um, you know, Nottingham and Great Yarmouth are different kinds of areas. Um, and you might think that there are different things that could and should be done in those areas in terms of improving economic performance. And finally, I mean, to speak to the question um, that was asked, uh, you know, the, the highest levels of child poverty are still in places like Tower Hamlets um, and even Islington, um, you know, which is otherwise characterized as leafy metropolitan. I think some of the shorthands that we use to refer to inequalities are, are not very helpful for understanding the data, but I think it's also true that it's been for too long we have ignored these regional inequalities that in particular face the Northeast, Yorkshire, and, and indeed the East Midlands, which you know sometimes isn't thought about in that way, but the, the, there, are, there are lots of pockets of underperformance and inequality um, in Northern Ireland and in Wales as well. So I think, um, yeah, I, this is the problem with saying we're going to focus only on the North as opposed to saying we're going to focus on inequalities wherever we see them. I think if I can just come in on that, I mean, Absolutely. I think I think Omar raises a really important point, which I think is so important for us to remember, which is that, you know, the highest rates of child poverty are found in London, um, particular boroughs of London. Um, but what I think that tells us is um, that we need to really get beneath the causes of what is driving the problem, because the causes are different in different parts of the country. So if you look at the London story, you know, you've got a huge housing cost issue driving poverty there. You've also got, um, you know, pockets of quite deep deprivation right up against very successful uh, places that are very successful economically so there it's about how do you make the how do you make a connection how do you um link people into the opportunities that are around them how do you make those opportunities open up to them whether that's about transport links or if that's about uh, opportunities for flexible working or whether that's about um you know training and skills whereas if you look at some of the um some of the places which are weakest economically there it's much more a story of, it's a it's a challenge of how do you create the uh, the economic yeah. vibrancy that's needed in those places there it's a story about a lack of economic you know, a lack of jobs a lack of good jobs um and a, a lack of sort of investment from the private sector it is also still about transport and it is also still about skills um but actually there's a sort of another level to the um to the challenge there about that needs to be that needs to be addressed so i think um yeah understanding the geography is really important but what we really need to understand is what are the causes because then that tells you a bit more about the sorts of action that you need to take to address the specific challenges in different areas 
Mike, did you want to come in on this at all? You're very I know, it's fine. <laughs> okay. I mean, this might be an unfair question, and just tell me if it's not the sort of question you feel uh, that you, you, you want to answer. But, I mean, given particularly the, the last two answers, where it seems that we have lots of different sorts of problems in different parts, it's clear there are no national solutions. There's no sort of one policy fits all. Can, is this the sort of thing that national government can and should do, or actually is part of the problem that we have an over-centralised system that can't be sensitive enough to the specific needs of specific places. So this is the political scientist in me coming out and I'll always drag it back to politics in the end. I apologise, but I don't know if you want to... Well, we've already ranged very widely in our discussions from the gap between the rich and the poor, the gap between different groups in society, and then almost into now uh, an economic growth and economic development agenda. Um, and so there's no way that a single policy framework is going to cover all of those all of those areas. Uh, no, um, but just going sticking with the the regional differences there, which is which is, as Kate, that Omar and Katie were talking about. Um, yes, undoubtedly we have too centralised a model uh, where local authorities, local mayors, even um, metropolitan mayors don't have enough power. And don't have enough resources at their at their beck and call. Um, and even when and when there are schemes to deliver funds to the regions, we saw some of that in the budget. They're they're still very tightly controlled from the centre, and um, and we're seeing now a row about precisely how those funds are allocated. So yes, uh, definitely. But certainly when it comes to this sort of regional economic development, um, the, the levelling up agenda, but think, interpreting levelling up more broadly than just the northern, the red wall, uh, then yes, undoubtedly we are too centralised. Either of you two want to? Yeah, I just agree. I think it links to my first answer too, which is, uh, you know, inequality is bad for people and because they're poor and they're, they lack the resources, uh, you know, sometimes even the food to feed their children, but it's also bad for people because it makes them feel that they're not included, involved in society, they don't have an equal stake. And I think one additional problem of decentralization, this isn't just a technical political science question, it, 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 it fails to involve people locally in decision-making. And so one additional reason, in addition to getting better uh, local economic performance from people closer to the ground who know what the needs are, is that you might empower local people to be more engaged in the policy and political process. I thought one of the really interesting things about the launch document for the Dayton review was that it talked about inequality of voice. Uh, and that this was stressed as, you know, and this, this, this sort of might speak to certain of the other forms of uh, inequality we've touched on is that some groups in society just don't have the chance to make themselves as heard as others. And I think that's, that's a really interesting aspect. But sorry, Katie, I, I cut in in case, I don't know if you wanted to. No, I mean, I'll just pick up that point you were just making, because I think it's a really important one. And yeah, we, um, we spend a lot of time talking to people who have experience of poverty, co-designing some of the solutions with them, talking to them about their experiences to understand the problems. And it just drives home every time that um, to really properly understand a problem, you need to talk to the people who are experiencing it, to know what's going to work. You need to test that with the people who are the sort of um, targets of a policy, if you like. And um, and also the you know the message that we hear time and time again when we ask people you know what's important to them and what what would they you know, what would they change if they could, it is often the, the the message we get back is so often about I don't feel heard I don't feel like my opinion counts I don't feel like I have 
control um, or, or efficacy, if you like, to uh, to sort of um, influence the situation around me. And I think um, you know so much of our our politics in in recent times, how you know, this sort of feeling has been a really important driver of of uh, quite a lot of the um, the sort of political outcomes that we've had in recent years. I feel bad expanding our scope still further, Mike, but I'm about to because there's so many of the questions that are sort of fiscal policy related and a lot of them are sort of saying, do the, does the joint context of Brexit and the pandemic mean it will be far, far harder to tackle problems of inequality than it would have been otherwise? It's not specifically for you, Mike, don't worry, I mean, it's for anyone. No, yeah, well, yeah. I, no, I'm happy to say that, I think it comes quite naturally to me. And I think that that, that is right, yes, I think I've been thinking about the the impact of of Brexit on inequality, you know, prompted by the your organisation and the questions you're posing, and I sus- suspect that a very an important mechanism does just come through the impact of Brexit or the pandemic on the size of our economy. The size of our economy affects uh, the amount of tax revenues available to government, and then that affects. Uh, that affects inequality directly, whether through the generosity of the welfare state or indirectly through what money government has available to spend on public services, on levelling up, on investment. So I think that yeah, that that that's for me. That's what I'm worried about in the next uh, the next ten years. I'm not. I, I mean, I'm a bit worried that the pandemic has also caused a step change in the amount of inequality between rich and poor in the UK. But I'm also worried that the the double hit of Brexit and the pandemic means there's just going to be less resources around for government to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I would I'd certainly agree with that assessment. And I think what it what it poses is a really important challenge then to government about the choices that they then make. Um, you know, we we didn't see a sort of we got a bit of a sense of what the Chancellor's fiscal consolidation might look like at the budget, um, but there's still obviously a lot more detail to, to follow on that. Um, the smaller that the economy is, the more challenging that that's going to be. And what is absolutely essential is that it is not the people who came into this pandemic uh, and into the sort of moment of actually leaving the European Union. You know, the people who came into that into this year, uh, sorry, into the pandemic in uh, in the worst situation, who were already, um, you know, already struggling to keep up with their bills, already getting into debt, already having to skip meals to uh, to make sure that their children were fed. You know. Those are the people who are in the worst shape coming in. A lot of those people have been hit hardest through this last year. And then the question now is, how do we actually make the decisions in the years to come that make sure we are, they are not now then on top of that, bearing the brunt of, this, of the uh, sort of fiscal consolidation that has to take place. But I think the other thing that I would add, as you mentioned um, fiscal policy there is, you know, at the budget, we saw a lot of, um, we think we saw a sort of a, quite a missed opportunity to think about how you stimulate the economy in such a way that you can actually begin to tackle some of these challenges that we have been raising. So, for example, you know, we could have seen a really ambitious scheme to uh, improve the energy efficiency of our housing stock and tackle fuel poverty at the same time. We could have seen a really ambitious program of social house building, which would have created jobs and stimulated the economy and also helped to tackle um, the sort of uh, the really high housing costs that a lot of people face. We could have um, seen a decision to make the £20 uplift to universal credit a permanent feature of our social security system. We know it's been a lifeline for people over the last year. And actually, uh, if it was made a more a permanent part of our system, we know that you know, that's money that people would then spend. Because if you don't have much money, if 
20 pounds makes a huge difference to you and you spend it and so it stimulates the economy so we could have seen a sort of two kill, kill two birds with one stone kind of strategy from the from the chancellor to both stimulate the economy to reduce the risk that we do have a smaller economy in future um, whilst also tackling some of these uh, inequalities and social problems that we've been talking about you, you, you've anticipated a question I was going to ask later on, but I'm going to pose it to the other two now as you, you've answered it so well, which is, had you been Chancellor last week, are there one, one or two measures that you would have introduced to tackle inequality that he didn't? I mean, what do you think? I mean, we've, we've established there's no silver bullet here, but had you been in charge of the budget speech, what might you have done to tackle inequality that wasn't done? Uh, let, me, let me, I guess I'll start on that. Um, the £20 a week in universal credit is probably the single most important decision that the, the Chancellor had, had to take. Um, as it is, he's confirmed it will go on for six more months and then, it, and then it's due to fall again. That will, make, that will make an enormous difference to incomes at the bottom of the distribution in some work we did earlier this year. It's the, it basically determines whether or not the, the bottom of the distribution see... Uh, any income growth over this parliament. You know, if, if, he does if he does make it permanent, then they do. And if he doesn't, then they won't. So policy matters enormously at the bottom of the distribution. I mean, I, I really, a chancellor who is really focused on tackling inequality might also have done something about the inequalities that have built up over the last year. Now, I, I wasn't expecting Rishi Sunak to do this. Um, and I haven't, we haven't particularly heard other politicians talk about it either. But this past year has been different from other crises in that the rich have got better off uh, because we've all been stuck at home and haven't been able to spend money, haven't been able to go on holidays. Uh, people who came into this crisis with, with some money and with, and with secure jobs have accumulated more wealth during the last crisis. So a, a really, really anti-inequality budget might have targeted some of that. And we, we called, we suggested or wondered a few months ago whether uh, some sort of solidarity tax, windfall tax might be might be merited. But, but that, yeah, that, that would have really borne down inequality. Although, although as I say, I'm, I'm not particularly surprised that that wasn't the first thing that Rishi Sunak uh, jumped to. Um, I, yeah, I don't have anything to add. I think a focus on on um, benefits and on, on wealth inequality would have been welcome. But I think also um, because we focus on higher education, I think it's worth highlighting the effect on young people as well. So um, you know that that both is a problem in itself because having if your first experience in the labor market is negative if you have you know a year of unemployment early on in your career that has lifelong scarring effects on your labor market opportunities and so there's a real concern that the short-term hit that young people are taking is going to be a medium to long-term hit on their economic and uh, labor market prospects um, and i think it's also a problem for social division which we already have a little bit of a generational divide about which inequalities uh, matter and that obviously maps onto some values issues as well so I, I think, you know, I, right now it looks like, you know, students are doing fairly well at, at universities, um, given the circumstances, but we also know there's a big gap in terms of qualifications that young people get and the labor market outcomes that graduates and non-graduates um, end up earning. And so, yeah, I have major concerns about what that means, not just in the short term this year under COVID, but also long term. And I suppose that's the final kind of it links also to the wider question, which both Mike and, and Katie have referred to is the sort of, this has really highlighted the distinction between those who have security and those who don't, um, mm. precariousness, however you want to refer to it, and um, something to enhance our security 
all of us so that we all feel like, you know, um, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, to, to go about your life. If you feel like basic things in your life, like your housing, your job, your family's, um, food and the calories that you're able to put on the table are so insecure. I want to stay on education just for a minute as this is where we've landed. <clears throat> the first question, I suppose, and I'll direct it at you in the first instance, Omar, if that's okay, is what do you make of the arguments you increasingly hear that we've, we've over-fetishized university education and that actually we shouldn't be just trying to push more and more people through universities. We should be doing other sorts of tertiary education. Uh, we should do more vocational things. We need to... We need to, you know, this is as much about society respecting other sorts of developmental pathways as anything else. Uh, and, you know, universities might in that sense be part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Yeah, I, I understand that position. I think as my sort of general point earlier, I'm, I'm a kind of both and as opposed to an either or person. So mm -hmm. I would like to see more higher participation rates. I don't, I, I am not of the view that we have too many people going to university uh, in the UK, especially look at the, the regional differences. So in, in London now, over half of the population is in higher education. In London, the proportion of people on free school meals who attend uh, higher education is at 48%, which is higher than the proportion of people not on free school meals in the Southeast. Um, so more kids on free school meals attend HE in London than rich kids, you could say, in, in the Southeast. So I, I, um, you know, I think that's a good thing. And I think it shows that the demand is there, that you know, there's no reason in my view to think that kids in London, kids in the Northeast shouldn't have the same aspirations as kids in London about going to HE. On the other hand, I do think it's also true that you know, not just policymakers, but employers um, have had uh, you know, a focus on graduate education as the um, necessary uh, qualification for certain kinds of jobs in the labor market. We talk about graduate jobs, right? And so obviously those jobs are meant to have an economic premium. Um, and in fact, if you look at the measures uh, that policy uh, uses to measure um, HE performance, um, the earnings of graduates is considered a, a, a relevant a metric and it's a relevant metric not just objectively but relatively so that that university graduates courses that have higher economic returns um, are considered better courses um, so I think one of the things there also though is to talk about the wider value of higher education the, the that it contributes to our society including I would say actually on one particular kind of inequality which is um, um, people from different backgrounds meet a lot at university. I think some of the attitudinal effects that we see at university are not education effects per se. They're rather social interaction effects that we see from the integration literature. So you meet people from different backgrounds at university, and that's what um, leads to attitudinal differences from people who don't go to university because our society is otherwise relatively segregated on grounds of class. But as, to sort of finish a kind of rambling answer there, I think the, the, the focus should be on both increasing participation rates. We still have very large gaps between those at the bottom and the top of the income distribution attending, attending HE, and I don't think that's acceptable. But I also think that um, we haven't focused enough on skills, qualifications, and that FE, FE in particular has been under-resourced for many years and, under, and undervalued. So just at this point, draw everyone's attention to a really good paper by my colleague Paula Surridge about you know what happens to people when they go to university that sort of dug deep into some of these issues and it's fascinating. Do either Katie or Mike want to come in on this issue of universities and higher education? I mean, I would certainly share Omar's view that um, it's 
I would yeah you know, I wouldn't agree with the position that too many people go to higher education. You know, you have to think about the kind of economy that we have. You know, it's a sort of it's a service-led economy that it's a it's a knowledge-driven economy. Like more people having higher education is really important. And I think yeah, you know, we have to really think through why it is that we see um yeah, generally participation rates from people from lower income backgrounds are lower. And a lot of that goes right back to um to into sort of schooling and thinking about that sort of pathway from there rather than just thinking about issues around admissions to university itself like by that point it's kind of too late so we need to get much more upstream of that issue but I do also think it's right to say that um, the the sort of quality and the return on non-higher education is this really really important issue I mean um, and and you'll remember a couple of years ago you and I along with some colleagues um, were involved in lots of discussions all around the country in places that have weaker economies, mm. um, talking to people about their priorities for their local economy as the UK left the European Union. And, you know, this training and skills issue was an absolutely fundamental one that came up time and time again. And what people described was, um, you know, bright young people from their area would go to university and then they wouldn't come back yeah. and they wouldn't come back because of the lack of economic opportunities yeah. there for them to be able to pursue the kinds of careers that they wanted to pursue. And then those who weren't going down the university pathway would find themselves sort of um, undertaking qualifications that didn't necessarily lead to the kind of um, you know, prosperous and good life that they that they wanted for for themselves and their families so there was clearly a sort of mismatch there about you know how do you how do we make sure that our training vocational opportunities do actually improve people's prospects and lead to mm. higher earnings um, the other thing I think that is just worth mentioning at this point is you know we tend to think about this debate as being about young people but it's not just about young people mm. we live in an economy that is changing rapidly people are going to have to retrain and move into different sectors. And I think that element of retraining for people who already have some qualifications, but perhaps need to move sectors, that is going to become, um, you know, it's already a really important issue and a big gap in our sort of, um, our offer to people, if you like. And I think that is only going to become more important as over time, um, we see the decline of some industries and the rise of others and people need to make that transition. You know, we learned in the 80s what happens if you don't support people through that transition when the economy changes. And if at the moment we are in danger of repeating some of those mistakes, I think. Yeah, I think we need a more nimble education system as a whole, don't we? I mean, it's a bit rigid and overly structured at the moment. But actually, one of the things that, that, that comes to mind from what you were just saying, Katie, is our, our residential universities perhaps part of the problem then. I mean, the fact that everyone everyone goes somewhere else to go to university, where there are other countries where a lot more people actually go to university from home and remain. Yeah, well, I, think, I mean, Omar probably knows this better than me, but I think that is increasingly the trend that we have seen here as well, and particularly okay. among lower, lower income families. But Omar, I don't know if that's something that you want to pick up on. Yeah, there's. I think there's quite a lot of yeah, there's quite a lot of commuting to certain kinds of institutions. Right. I think this also gets to the, the uh, I mean, there is some evidence also around 
that things that like belonging matter a lot and that maybe low-income students feel like the local FE provider is a place they feel they can belong better. Um, even if you live in a, a city with a red brick or perhaps, perhaps especially if you live with in a city uh, with a Russell group institution where that institution seems very far away from your social experience. Um, but I, I think on the, I just want to say one thing on the, the sort of, we need to hide, because you hear this a lot, right? We need to elevate the status of non-HE qualifications. But you hear this a lot from people who choose for their own children only to go into HE. So I think there is a, a real, you know, question mark about how committed we are to, to, that, to that recalibration. I mean, until we see not just, um, basically until we need to see more people at the top of the quintile thinking that FE qualifications are good for their kids for, because the H, you know, the, the kids, whenever we say that, well, HE isn't for everyone, there's a certain kind of everyone that we mean it's not for. And we do mean it's almost for everyone in the top of the quintile, regardless of their, their aptitude or interests, but we don't, you know, so I think there's a, there's a job there to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just sticking on education again, I'm not, we don't have to answer this if no one feels comfortable, but a question from Mary Hawkin who says, labor improved education outcomes in London significantly. Is there evidence that this had an impact on inequality. Really, really good question. question. Um, Which is why I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if anyone feels particularly yeah. equipped to. Don't don't know at all the answer, but that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think what one thing for me what, in my previous job at Running Me that I I would often point this out that you know educational attainment gaps had closed quite a lot for some ethnic minority groups, but income gaps hadn't closed as much. So I think that that we should read across that, you know, that uh, just tackling inequality gaps on socioeconomic status similarly will not tackle all the inequalities that we see in the labor market. So there are some sources here that are about educational attainment, and we should tackle them. But just tackling educational attainment gaps alone will not translate into better um, labor market equality on grounds of socioeconomic status. Okay. uh Okay. There's a question here just asking you because we haven't gone broad enough already. And I want to get broader, I'm afraid. Uh, just to talk about, in the context of the pandemic, the relationship between inequality and health outcomes. I don't know if anyone feels that they can address this. Go on, Mike. Maybe we should all go, maybe we should all go back and read that uh, fantastic article last week in the Financial Times, which was just describing brilliantly the, in, the interaction between... Is that the, the triangle? triangle. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, yes, which I thought was brought out very, very well, the interaction between economic deprivation, disadvantage, along, along with uh, health. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, so, so let me try and summarise that. For those who haven't read it, I suppose that, that that article was getting at two points. The, the first point is that housing is very important for our ability to cope with the pandemic if you, if you live in a bigger house it is easier to keep apart from other people in your household so you're less likely to to catch this disease um and the second one is the your 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 labor market situation makes a big difference as to whether you can afford to self-isolate when you have to so those, those, that, those, those, I think, are the two big uh, economic inequalities which are affecting um, directly on, people, on, on people's health outcomes uh, through this pandemic. I should add, before I let the other two come in, that for anyone who hasn't read the Marmot uh, report, it's worth reading because parts of it are just simply jaw-dropping. Uh, 
to know what the word for it, but Omar or Katie? Yeah, I mean, I think just, I mean, I think Mike sort of summarised the sort of pandemic element really well. I think, I guess the um, the only thing I would add is that, and this gets at the Marmot stuff, you know, there is a clear relationship between poverty and health as well. So if you are um, living in poverty, you are more likely to be in poor health and it sort of works both ways. So, you know, if you're, mm. if you're disabled or you've got a long-term health condition that affects your um, ability to um, perhaps to work as many hours or, um, or leaves you more reliant on benefits to top up your income in order to um, cover the additional costs of your condition. And you know, we know from the data that um, people who are in poverty are much more likely to be experiencing, uh, people who are disabled are much more likely to be experiencing poverty. Uh, and similarly, um, you know, if you are constantly stressed as a result of poverty, if you are working in the sorts of jobs that are really, really bad for your physical health. You know, it's, it, it also goes the other way that your poverty can also create health problems for you. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, the relationship between the two is really, is really close. And actually, if we can tackle poverty effectively, some health problems would be eased as a result. We've got yeah. a question here from someone called Jill Rutter, who says, should the Chancellor have focused more on redressing the impact of the pandemic on women, or is that not an important dimension of inequality? A lot of nods. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think someone else should go. Katie should go, Katie should go first. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly an important um, element of... Uh, uh, gender is certainly an important element of inequality. Um, and yeah, I think... If you look at some of the, if you look at things like um, the parts of the economy which have been hardest hit by the pandemic, it's a lot of the sectors that women disproportionately work in. So it's, it's jobs that are low paid, jobs that are flexible, where you tend to find um, often women or particularly lone parents working there. So um, so there is definitely a sort of um, story around women and the pandemic, um, and of course. You know, a lot of people have also experienced the um, the added stress and impact of uh, of the whole kind of homeschooling uh, side of that as well, and the way in which that has fallen unequally on men and women in many households. Um, the sorts of things I think we could have seen from the chancellor in the um, in the budget, um, certainly things like the maintain you know maintaining the uh, twenty pound uplift to universal credit would have been of huge consequence to uh, to low-income women, um, so that's certainly one thing that you know, there's a sort of whipping away of that lifeline in September, just as furlough comes to an end, and just as unemployment is expecting to be peaking at expected to be peaking at over two million. Um, yeah, we estimate that that is going to push half a million people into poverty just as we're entering the winter. Um, so there's sort of a perfect storm brewing there that will affect women um, disproportionately. Um, I think the other thing as well, going back to what I was saying before about um, there were opportunities for the Chancellor to kind of kill two birds with one stone. I think another thing that he could have done at the um, at the budget that he didn't is to really tackle the issues around social care and actually in particular in relation to women, the social care workforce. So, you know, we know we've got a problem of, um, uh, you know, that we need to recruit more people to social care. There's a huge number of vacancies. Um, 
we could have expanded the social care workforce and at the same time actually taken steps to improve those jobs in terms of their security and their levels of pay. Uh, again, a workforce that is disproportionately female, a workforce that is disproportionately experiencing in-work poverty. So I think there are examples of things like that where the Chancellor could have taken steps that would have been good generally, would have been good fiscal stimulus, but actually also would have been good for women. Which is doubly curious in a way because the Prime Minister had a plan ready to go two years ago. Anyway, let's leave that to one side. Someone else want to come in on gender inequality? Yeah, I'll come in. Um, I mean, I agree with all, all that Katie said. I mean, we at Resolution Foundation have been focusing on, on living standards and the labour market hit of this crisis. And, and we hadn't really flagged gender as being a particularly big dimension of inequality, a big issue through, through this crisis compared to differences we saw by age of worker or by the type of contract people had. Um, and I think compared to some other countries, particularly the US, the gender differences in the labour market here have been smaller. But what is becoming it was becoming clear, and the um, article by the ONS earlier this week brought that out really nicely, is that considered on a more than just incomes and learnings, uh, it, 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 does, it does seem that women, particularly mothers, have suffered more than men, particularly fathers. And it's in this double or treble hit of a labour market hit, but also increased responsibilities because schools are closed, which is clearly affecting um, mental health of women more than it is affecting mental health of men. So that and that is really serious. Um, as to what the Chancellor could have done, I mean, I, I sort of feel it's it's a bit too late. So, so what he, what he could have, I think what he, what he could have done, particularly as he went into the this last lockdown, this the current lockdown, the hopeful hopefully the last lockdown, and I think it's been in this it's in this most recent lockdown where we've seen these gender inequalities or the or the mother father inequalities rear up much more than before. There just seems to be a real issue that. Um, mothers just have to suck it up during this lockdown. In the first lockdown, we were a bit more, um, a bit more uh, understanding about it, and, and companies were using furlough more often where um, people couldn't work properly. But this time around, it does seem to have been that companies have just been a bit tougher and saying, "Well, it's your problem." So we could have done something then, going to that third lockdown, to, to to remind companies that they 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 need to give their employees a break and that the furlough scheme is there for people who can't work because of children. Um, yeah, and then you know, and the mental health difficulties. Well, they're sort of they've sort of happened already. They're happening now. Now I'm not quite sure what the chancellor could have done. He he could though do something. Have done something about childcare infrastructure, and because we have a childcare infrastructure that is, uh, it's a mixed economy of childcare. So we have private providers, not for profit, and public providers. Those ones outside the public sector have have done poorly. I've, I've seen their revenues fall uh, substantially during the last year and undoubtedly we will be going to the recovery with fewer childcare facilities available than we went into the pandemic and that is only going to affect, that's only going to make gender inequality worse. So he could, he could, have, he could have invested in childcare to help try and close some of those, uh, some of the, those gender gaps. So no, I, think, I think it's been, it's not been a good, we've not come out of this well for gender, gender equality. I'm not, but I'm yeah, it, yeah, possibly this budget's a bit too late to go back and undo uh, the, yeah. what actually happened. Sorry, Can I just, I just two, 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 two real quick uh, points. I think it just shows again the sort of <laughs> fact that the that the pandemic has revealed, but also exacerbated existing uh, inequalities and, and and on gender in particular that women are expected just to pick up the slack when men don't do. You know, whether it's child, especially. Um, 
uh, childcare arrangements, um, but also in terms of things like cleaning up around the house uh, and that sort of thing. And so, I, and the second point I want to make is I think that the economic policies are really important here um, for themselves, but there are those other policies then that we need to do about attitudinal change. But the final point I'll make on that is I think that the, the, the economic policies actually do send a signal themselves. So if we had a different childcare provision, if we had different maternity and paternity leave policies, that itself would send a signal about the kind of society and the kind of gender norms that we expect. We've got a few sort of more specific questions that I'm going to put to you. So if any of you want to take any of these up, then please go ahead. The first is, is there a relationship between levels of inequality in this country and the fact that we've suffered one of the highest death tolls in the pandemic? Is there a relationship we can see between those two? It's really hard. Uh, I don't know the answer. I mean, I, I, the, the, your pre the previous question we talked about a few minutes ago gets at that. So we, we yeah. know lots of good reasons why uh, inequality and particularly deprivation makes people more susceptible to the virus. Um, but I think that's uh, no, that's that's a great idea for a piece of research. I think we should get on and do that. But I don't think we, I don't think we yet know the answer to that. We'll invite you back, and we'll we'll. And I think comparatively too, we don't know. Different governments no. have responded in different rate ways too. So I think yeah. you know, there's the first question, which is, do the pre-existing inequalities make one place susceptible, all things equal, than another? Which I think is true. Yes, given the fact of the social determinants of health that we've already talked about. But the second complicating factor is governments have responded very differently to this, and you'd have to somehow control. Uh, I think for for that to answer that question um well yeah it's quite a lot of variables and it probably is too soon to, to yeah. assess as yet a very specific question uh which is what is the gini coefficient in the uk and actually if whoever wants to take a stab at answering it if someone has got the number to hand would like to just explain to our audience what it means that would help as well i think well, well, I'll say what it, I'll define it, but I haven't. But well, I'm sitting here on, on my tablet, so I can't even Google uh, at the same time. But I'll let, I'll let you know, I'll, I'll colleagues, do that. So, uh, I mean, it's it's a pretty weird measure, to be honest. I mean, it, it, there isn't a good intuitive measure of what it is. It is it, what it tries to do is capture in a single number some sense of the gaps between rich, rich and the poor, and the higher is the Gini coefficient, and the more inequality there is. Um, there, there is a formula behind it, but I can't even give you a particularly nice piece of intuition behind that formula. Um, high, so high numbers means means more inequality. I mean, there are certainly lots of problems with it um, because it's just a single number. Then it can it can hide an awful lot of what's going on un underneath, if you like. Um, so I, I said at the very start of this conversation that the UK had had unchanging inequality for the last two or three decades. And, and by that, what I really meant was the GD coefficient hasn't really budged. I think it's about 0.38, but you know, maybe one of them might, might want to call it because Google it by now, but it's stuck at around that level, plus or minus of a, a little bit for, for two or three decades. But that doesn't mean that the income distribution has, has stayed the same shape. So this is like sort of lining up from rich to poor and, and seeing how many people have different kinds of incomes. That shape has changed uh, considerably in, in the last uh, tw two or three decades. And particularly we've seen, um, particularly at the top, the very, at the very top where we saw a pulling away uh, of, the, of the very rich during the 90s and the 2000s until the financial crisis, whilst the rest of the distribution was broadly static. Then the financial crisis came along that really hammered the, the top incomes quite a lot because it was rooted in the, in the, rooted in the financial sector. But since, but since then, they've begun to recover, and we're almost 
seeing top incomes getting getting back towards their pre-financial crisis level. But that's just an example of how, yes, this un unchanging genie can hide an awful lot of what's going on underneath. And that, as you would expect, because we're trying to summarize something as complicated as the shape of the income distribution in a single number. Omar, were you Googling then? Yeah, it is. I think it's okay. 3.36 or 0.35 right now. Yeah. So you're a little, a little higher than, yeah. It, yeah. I think Mike's point though is important <laughs> that it's just, it's one way, but it's, you know, um, whatever measure you use, the UK is around the same. I mean, another one you might care about are 80, 20 ratio. So the ratio between the incomes or wealth of the bottom 80% compared to the top quintile or the bottom quintile compared to the top quintile. So there's, different ways of trying to measure uh, which uh, inequalities you care about. Do you care more about the fact that those at the very bottom are very far away from those in the middle? Do you care very more that those at the bottom are further away from those at the top? Do you care very much about inequalities between the middle and the top? Is, should we care about that? Um, so that, that's kind of, you, and then you design a measure to, depending on how much you give the relative weight of those different um, gaps um but on any of those measures the uk doesn't fare very well i suppose compared to other compared to sorry compared to other similar um countries yeah. obviously there are countries uh with with worse yeah. gini coefficients than the uk yes katie do you want to come in on this okay well we're going to mix it up a bit more now and make it even more complicated because nick bradbury wants to know if we should target <laughs> equality of outcome or of opportunity You all must have answered this at events before. I mean, I think, funnily enough, I haven't ever answered this at an event before, but, um, <laughs> but I think, so just trying to think through what that actually means. I mean, obviously you don't expect everyone to have the same outcome in life. So I think it's it's having the, the tools and the resources to be able to, um, to actually get on in life if you talk to people about what they want they want to have a reasonable standard of living they want their kids to do well and they want to um yeah, they want to be able to participate in the society that's around them you know they want to not just be able to afford the basics of a house and um their bills and food on the table they also want to be able to afford to you know buy a birthday present for their kids or um have a dinner with a friend you know it's like the, these are the sort of these are the kinds of things that people think everyone should be able to afford um so i think starting from from that position and what what other things that enable you to do that in life is probably quite a good starting point for the question so i suppose that is probably equality of opportunity but with a very definite flaw in terms of the outcome that we should all be able to expect as a minimum thank you and, and as Katie was speaking, it gave me time to remember how um, how the, the late John Hills would answer this question, which is that you you cannot have equality opportunity if you have large inequalities in outcomes, right? And one, and one of the reasons why um, I, I was arguing at the beginning of the conversation that it's just bad to carry on having a high level of inequality, it's, it's precisely that point that um, um, as, as the as we have these gaps, we have the gaps between between the rich and the poor, and we know that they they are easily that they are trans transmitted into the next generation. So people, we, we, yeah, we children do not get an equal start in life uh, because they are born to parents who have different level of resources available to them. So, so yeah, so the so the, 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 the simple argument is you can't have equality of opportunity 
uh, with with such high uh, inequality in outcomes. But also uh, the, the, the evidence on what on the harmful impacts of inequality are about inequality in outcomes. I mean, it, 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 if you're being purist about it, it sort of does, almost doesn't really matter where the inequalities in incomes come from, given that we're pretty sure they lead to poor social outcomes, worse health, uh, so, you know, increased social cohesion. It, it's, it's, the out, it's, yeah, it's the outcomes that, 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 it's the inequality in the outcomes that seem to be, that seem to matter. So we need, we need to tackle those directly. Um, and as a byproduct, and as well, we should also be doing things to improve equality of opportunities. Yeah, I just agree with that. I think the only way to know whether inequalities are, uh, sorry, equalities are of opportunity are equal is to measure the outcomes as well. So it's kind of, you yeah. can't, it's very hard directly to measure opportunity. Yeah, a slightly different slant on this, if I can do another plug, is there's a working paper on our website about merito meritocracy and populism at the moment. And the yeah. whole debate about meritocracy is a very interesting and important one, I think, that feeds into a lot of these themes that we're discussing here today you know how real is merit when society is so loaded in favor of some over others uh, which i think speaks to mike's point yeah which has also reminded me actually of um yeah, the sort of point that we would normally make around sort of social mobility is that you know if you you can't have a socially mobile society you can't have a, a you know, sort of genuine merit, meritocracy when when people you know, when so many people are experiencing poverty and all of the implications that that has for their life chances and you know and as, uh, as Mike and Omar have said, their outcomes. So, Yeah, if you think about HE, for example, everyone should have an equal opportunity to access higher education. That tells you nothing about what kinds of outcomes you then think are justifiable in terms of the, 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 the wage um, benefit of having a graduate degree versus not having one. So we can say everyone should have equal opportunity to access higher education, um, which is true. Um, I, I don't know then, you know, it, it's that's... I think you're agnostic then about you don't even it doesn't tell you anything about what kind of outcomes you should have in terms of wages in the labor market. What what um, rewards attached to what kinds of roles is a, is a separate question then as well. Also, I think it plugs into what we mean by equality of opportunity, because it's quite clear to me that not everyone has an equality of opportunity to go to higher education. Because oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm saying yeah. imagine you can imagine very different outcomes worlds where we have the same you could have many different societies that have equal opportunity to HE yeah. and you'd have very, very different outcomes. And yeah. how then would you assess which of those societies you thought were better or worse? And I think people will have different views. I think, you know, I think Mike's and Katie's point, I think that, that the data is really important here that the outcomes we've got just are, are bad in themselves and it makes it hard to have equal opportunities. Um, yeah. So I, there's a little bit of a view. I think that we don't want to be so, sort of Stalinistic about having cookie cutter outcomes for every single individual in society. And so therefore that's what you mean when you say equality of outcome. But I think for most people, when they say, when they're focusing on outcomes, they're just thinking that equality should be, you know, outcomes should be less unequal than they are now. I don't know if you know Penn's parade, this economist in the seventies who designed this parade, he imagined the whole of society walking by and he, he tracked their income to their height. And normally in a normal distribution over the hour of the parade of humanity walking past you, the shortest person would be about, you know, four foot and the tallest person would be about seven foot. And so at, you know, minute one, you'd see people who are four foot tall. And at minute 59, you'd see seven footers. If you do it for income, the people in the last second are skyscrapers high. And if you do it in the sort of first second, the people are like 
ants, you know, they're so low on the, on the table. So I suppose the intuition he's trying to get at there is the inequality of distribution of wealth and income is very different from the inequality that yeah. we would expect of normal other human attributes. So uh, whether or not um, you think that's unjustifiable is I think a second question <laughs> of whether you should focus on an opportunity or outcome. Okay, hang on. There was a question here. I was going to. Uh, oh yeah, this question from Ben Brindle. It's quite interesting. It goes back to uh, something we were talking about earlier when we were talking about sort of geographic inequalities. Is there a danger that the emphasis the government is placing on levelling up means that poorer parts of richer areas are going to find themselves even more deprived going forward than they would otherwise have been. That is to say, you see transfers from essentially from, from richer to poorer regions, but actually the poorer parts of richer regions get completely and utterly overlooked. Does that strike you as a danger inherent in the government's approach? Uh, I think if I was to try and summarise what the government's approach to levelling up is, it's quite challenging at the moment. Um, so certainly there are some really positive measures around trying to um, spend infrastructure spending differently. And that's, you know, we know is important for uh, particularly areas of the country that have been hugely underinvested in over many, many years. But beyond that, thinking about the sort of package of measures that we saw in the budget, it's a lot of small piecemeal centrally controlled short-term pots of money mm -hmm. um, whereas I think what what would be needed is a much more sort of sustained long-term um, and um, sort of ambitious uh, funding with powers and responsibilities attached might be sort of more what uh, I would think of as as leveling up so given there is, we're not necessarily seeing a huge redistribution of um, money from higher income areas to lower income areas. Um, it's perhaps not an, an immediate concern would be my sort of flippant answer. The, the more serious point though, I think goes back to what I was saying before about really understanding what are the drivers of the outcomes that we have in different parts of the country. So in the parts of the country where it is about the fact that we just simply have not enough private sector activity, not enough private sector investment and, um, and sort of low levels of skills, you know, that those are the sorts of interventions that take a long time to um, to address um, but in time would be good for the um, for the economy overall because you would get to a position where all parts of the UK economy are actually kind of you know, the UK economy is kind of firing on all cylinders at the moment we are very lopsided and uh, heavily reliant on economic activity and tax receipts from sort of one part of the country so uh, over time it should actually improve the situation um, to then, you know, to be able to address those issues. Uh, so basically, I think it's not, it's, it's another one that's uh, sort of not an either or. I think it's about addressing the, um, the sort of drivers that are before us for the different sorts of problems that we face in different parts of the country. I have nothing to add. <laughs> okay, uh, Mike. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I agree with Katie that because it's not really clear what is the government strategy to levelling up or how, what the government understands by that. It's, it's hard. I can't see the, the, the danger that the question put, sorry, the person asked the question put to us. But I mean, what, what, I, what, what I, sometimes I do see and what I do think is a problem is, and it may be a problem just amongst journalists or political journalists, is it would be very bad if we equated the red wall or the blue wall with levelling up. 
Now, so there's so I can understand from a political party's point of view a need to focus on on marginal constituencies, um, and so I can understand why the Conservative Party might want to hold on to its its new uh, its new blue seats, and it and, and it has certainly pointed out that some of those seats are in economically vulnerable places. But it would be yeah, it would be great shame if if journalists or the commentariat forgot that there were uh, many other equally deprived places elsewhere, just uh, just yeah, elsewhere in the country, and, and, and definitely not certainly not as in areas outside the North or Wales. Let me put a, a slightly more political question to you. It's, it has struck me, I don't know if it, if, if it has struck you as well, that there has been far more at least rhetorical focus on inequality from politicians in both the large parties subsequent to the Brexit referendum. It equally strikes me that we have got used to a far bigger role for the state and there is some evidence to suggest that people are more willing to uh, countenance higher taxes as a result of the pandemic. So there is, in a sort of paradoxical way, given all we've said about the, the fiscal issues that Brexit and the pandemic might pose us with, is there a sense that politically this is quite a unique moment in terms of the politics of inequality, its centrality, and perhaps our willingness to address it, or am I being pathetically and naively optimistic? Well, I think it is definitely a moment. Um, we've seen quite big shifts in public attitudes and you know this predates the pandemic um and actually just about predates the uh, the brexit vote as well like from about 2015 onwards we were starting to see a shift in uh, in opinion about things like um whether spending more money on social security would be a good thing or not and whether or not people were sort of willing to pay more taxes in order to invest in uh, in public services and that sort of feeling of um, that um, you know austerity was was quite a sort of popular offering to to begin with but certainly we've reached a sort of point where it feels you know it, where that has reached the end of the road and public opinion has shifted similarly on sort of issues around poverty and inequality uh, we're seeing some shifts in how the public think about it and actually in uh, I think autumn time last year Ipsos Mori does its regular tracking of what are the issues that people are most concerned about, they think are most salient. And poverty and inequality actually came third after the pandemic and economic consequences of it. But it came above the NHS, which I think is, as far as we know, is the first time that that's ever happened. So there are definitely shifting attitudes. And I think there is a sort of sense that uh, we do need to, um, to invest and um, people are concerned about sort of the visible um, implications of some of these, uh, some of the challenges that we've been talking about. I think if you talk about inequality, it's quite intangible for people. It's quite hard to connect with. But actually, if you look at the issues that people are concerned about, things like, um, you know, growing number of people using food banks or, um, uh, you know, the sort of debate that we saw around free school meals, you know, there are lots of things that are sort of real and tangible that people can grasp onto that kind of become, um, uh, sort of talismanic for the sort of for the debate in terms of things that people can can identify with. Um, so I think there is definitely a shifting attitude, and I think politically, um, given where the conserv a lot of the conservative votes came from in 2019, that shifts it as well uh, in terms of the things that they need to care about to hold that or to address in order to hold that electoral coalition together. And I think as well internationally, it's interesting. You know, you look at what's going on over in the states with. Joe Biden's big fiscal stimulus package, which is very much focused on addressing poverty and, um, and, and uh, sort of the living standards of people at the bottom and in the middle. Um, and, you know, America has had a very different 12 months to us. 
it's not necessarily right that we would do exactly the sorts of things that they have done. But I think just in terms of the influence that that has on the world and kind of how people think about these things, that's going to be quite a key potential moment of, uh, of sort of shifting the international debate about some of these questions. Thank you. That's really interesting. Before I come on to the other two, let me just say thank you to all the people who are now telling us in the questions what the genie for coefficient is and to Paula Surridge for the link. Paula's got a link in the question list if you want to click on it and it'll take you to the answer. Sorry. Uh, Mike? Can I jump in? Thank you. Um, I can't pretend to be an expert on what what people think about inequality and what, what, what drives that. And indeed, um, and, and your organization's research last week you know, shot, shone sunlight on that. And in some cases, uh, quite, quite depressing stories, but I'll let you talk about that if you want to. But what, 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 I, what, I, will say, what I will say is that alongside this changing public, uh, public discourse or public debate or political debate in the UK, there's also been a change in the, in the debate in academia and amongst, amongst researchers. Um, and again, when I was doing, doing the research for my own book uh, a, a year or so ago, was, I was really struck by how many um, respected, sensible, uh, boring international organizations now say inequality is one of the major challenges of our time. Yeah. This, is, this would not have been the case two decades ago. Uh, it wasn't the case two decades ago. I mean, when I started my career, um, as a civil servant and at the IFS, I was thinking about poverty and inequality, and it was it was a really niche topic. And now it is not a niche topic. So, so I think, but I think lots of things have changed. It's not just that people are more concerned. It's not just that politicians talk about it a bit more. It's it's that the that, that we have the, the, the whole world is talking about it more, and there's just much more of a consensus. Indeed, I think the UK is almost lagging behind how much we talk about inequality being a bad thing. Than, than some other countries, um, than, than some other countries are. So certainly, our, sorry, our politicians are. Um, sorry, when it comes to think about the gaps between the rich and the poor, UK politicians don't talk about it as much as politicians in other countries as some of these major international organisations. I mean, you can have people at Davos saying there's too much inequality, um, uh, 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 as, as well as yeah, IMF, OECD, uh, World Bank, uh, and so on. Yeah, and I'd, I'd say also, uh, you know, we're a new What Works Center, and we were explicitly established to tackle inequalities uh, in higher education, right? Um, and there are a number of these What Works Centers with the support of, of government um, to tackle inequalities in early education. So I think that also speaks to, to, to what Mike is, is getting at, which is researchers and, and, in fact, elite policymakers even are, are now agreeing that inequality um, is, is, is too big of a too big of a problem. I'm sorry for this, but there's a whole sort of new area that three or four people have raised. I'm going to put to you. And again, if you don't want to go there, just say, but a lot of people are interested in the relationship between an aging population and inequality. And it's being expressed in different ways, whether it's the strain on the state's resources, whether it's the danger of uh, older people uh, suffering from poverty if they can't afford care but I mean however you want to do it because there, there are lots of people addressing this from different angles is is an aging population an issue for those who are concerned about inequality let me put it that way as broadly as possible so you can I mean uh, take this is a test of the fact that people think you know everything yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> um I, th I think probably yes. You know, in general, uh, it's not uh, it's not great. I mean, we're there. The 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 chain of thought be is that 
a more elderly population is going to put more demands on the state. And if there are more demands on the state to look after a population, then there's less the state can do to tackle some of the other underlying inequalities. Uh, or, or you know, so, so there's a sort of fist, yeah, you know, there's so, only so much tax revenues to go around. But, um, but there's, another, there's something, working the other rec- something working in the other direction. If we really think about, um, about the UK and about differences by age, then I, th- I thought you were going to get at the intergenerational differences in particular. I mean, yes. So there, there uh, we're seeing the opposite. So there the risk is that um, as, our, as our population becomes a little bit older and, or as, or as the, the baby boomers and generation have followed them, um, sort of become a bit more numerous and, and uh, perhaps get to the position where they're exerting more political power. There's also a risk that um, intergenerational inequalities are sort of fixed and, and that the current young generation who, who might be one of the first not, not to do as well economically as their predecessors get stuck there. So I think there's yeah, they're, 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 they're that risk too, which then goes in, in the other direction. Well, because of my age, I deliberately didn't touch on that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting that the, okay, so the wider point there is that what's interesting is that um, we've just seen a tilting. So usually it is, well, for, for generations, it's been the case that every new cohort will end up being richer than its predecessors. And that's, yeah. that's broken down. That's just not the case anymore. So it, it, was, it was broke down you know, roughly about the 1960s. So if you're born in the 1960s, you're at that turning point. You're born after the 1960s. It is quite possible that you're not going to be as well off as people born, born beforehand. And that's true whether we look at your earnings, your, uh, the wealth you're accumulating, your chance of being a homeowner. So that's a really big change. Well, the upside to that is it's made me feel young as someone who was born after the 60s. Um, <laughs> but um, just to um, come in on the sort of ageing point, um, I mean, the story of poverty and ageing is actually a really, really positive one in a lot of respects. If you look at what's happened to pensioner poverty in this country, it absolutely nosedived over the last few decades. And it's gone from being a really common experience in older age to being actually one of the groups that is least likely to experience poverty. We have, however, seen a slight uptick in the um, most recent few years worth of data. So there's definitely not room for complacency. But I think what it does show us is that um, policy can have an effect on poverty. The choices that we make can have an effect on poverty. Um, But some of the things which are kind of lurking there that we need to be aware of, I think, with this kind of uptick in in mind is certainly the issues around working longer. We know, know people who are sort of over the age of 50 who have lost their jobs in the last year through the pandemic will find it much more challenging to get back into the labour market often. And you often get people just sort of dropping out of the labour market and then sort of living in uh, later years um, on uh, quite low incomes. Um, the, other th- the other issue is actually housing. And this is connected to that sort of intergenerational debate that, um, that Mike touched on, which is that, you know, if you've not been in a position to be able to, a lot of our sort of... Um, set up for older age is sort of premised on the fact that you will have bought your own house. And uh, for people who are, you know, the growing numbers of people who are in the private rented sector, entering into uh, pensionable age in the private rented sector is a pretty precarious position to be in, in terms of being able to continue to afford your housing costs. And so there are definitely some issues around kind of aging and inequality, um, which I think are real sort of um, red red flags to keep an eye on um, for the future. It just really quickly, because I know there's not a lot of time, but I think the policy tools that worked and the deal that was struck, I think, and even the story that we told people about uh, life 
you know, how your life would go from over your life course from birth to death. Um, and we constructed policies that, as Katie said, have sort of worked. But I think there's two things that have also shown that there's a challenge with that, which is the, the sort of increasing number of over 85s and over 75. So the sort of period of time after which people are retiring is, is, is lengthening. And secondly, what COVID has exposed is even those, you know, who are older, who may even be financially secure, are very at risk of other forms of health inequalities too. Um, and those take a very serious toll. I mean, the over 85s have been hit hardest um, by COVID. And I do finally do worry about the attitudinal differences that we haven't talked about that much today, but that we know on a whole host of issues. Um, and if that sharpens, obviously that that's not that's not great generally for social division, but it's particularly not good for trying to create a consensus around tackling inequality. Brilliant. Uh, it's a minute before quarter past. Yesterday, I got uh, criticised by people for dragging on overtime and depriving people who had 1.30 meetings of a chance to eat anything at all. So I will stop on time. Usually I would take the three of you out for lunch. I'm really sorry I'm not able to do that. We will do that when we can. And I do hope we can get you to speak at other events again. Uh, on the Slido, you should have the link to the Policy Institute uh, survey that Mike talked about. I should also point out, for those who are interested, that there's a conference going on at the moment called the New Local Conference. And Michael Marmot has given a very interesting speech this morning about inequality and building back fairer that you might want to look at. But for the moment, many, many thanks, Katie, Omar and Mike. I thought that was utterly fascinating. We could have gone on for a lot longer, but it is lunchtime and we have priorities. But uh, we hope to see you at our events Thank again you. very, very soon. Thank you very much indeed.